We'll be reading this morning from Genesis chapter 49, beginning in verse 29, through the end of chapter 50. Genesis 49, beginning in verse 29. Hear the word of the Lord. Then he charged them and said to them, I am gathered to my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron, the Hittite, in the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham bought with the field of Ephron, the Hittite, as a possession for a burial place. There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife, There they buried Isaac and Rebekah his wife, and there I buried Leah. The field and the cave that is there were purchased from the sons of Heth. And when Jacob had finished commanding his sons, he drew his feet up into his bed, breathed his last, and was gathered to his people. Then Joseph fell on his father's face and wept over him and kissed him. And Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Forty days were required for him, for such are the days required for those who are embalmed. And the Egyptians mourned for him seventy days. Now when the days of his mourning were past, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh, saying, If now I have found favor in your eyes, please speak in the hearing of Pharaoh, saying, My father made me swear, saying, Behold, I am dying in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father, and I will come back. And Pharaoh said, Go up and bury your father, as he made you swear. So Joseph went up to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of his house, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, as well as all the house of Joseph, his brothers, and his father's house. Only their little ones, their flocks, and their herds they left in the land of Goshen. And there went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great gathering. Then they came to the threshing floor of Atad, which is before beyond the Jordan, and they mourned there with a great and very solemn lamentation. He observed seven days of mourning for his father. And when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, This is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan." So his sons did for him just as he had commanded them, for his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave in the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham bought with the field from Ephron the Hittite as property for a burial place. And after he had buried his father, Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers and all who went up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, Perhaps Joseph will hate us and may actually repay us for all the evil which we did to him. So they sent messengers to Joseph, saying, Before your father died, he commanded, saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, I beg you, please forgive the trespass of your brothers and their sin, for they did evil to you. Now please forgive the trespass of the servants of God, your father. And Joseph wept when he spoke to them, when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also went and fell down before his face, and they said, Behold, we are your servants. Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, in order to bring it about, as it is this day, to save many people alive. Now therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph dwelt in Egypt He and his father's household, Joseph lived 110 years. 
Joseph saw Ephraim's children to the third generation. The children of Machir, the son of Manasseh, were also brought up on Joseph's knees. And Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph took an oath from the children of Israel, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Well, this is it. We're at the end of Genesis. We began our exposition through Genesis in August of last year. Fourteen months we have spent uh, in this book of beginnings. And as we come to the end of it, I want to ask you this question. What is the most significant act of faith you have ever done in your life? Have you ever thought about that? What have you done that is a significant act of faith in God? I mean, at some point, most, if not all of us in this room, have trusted Christ for salvation. And that in itself is an act of faith, but it's a faith that is enabled by the Spirit of God who regenerates our inner person, our heart, and gives us the grace of faith to believe. And as the great solas of the Reformation state, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And then we learn to live the Christian life. We learn to walk by faith and not by sight. So if someone was writing your biography and they wanted to make a note of the most significant act of faith in your life as a Christian, what would it be? We tend to think of acts of faith as being great deeds, uh, praying in faith for a miracle that then occurs, or going to a, a dangerous part of the world as a missionary, or boldly proclaiming the gospel and repentance to a, a wicked tyrant who has the authority to kill you. But as we come to the close of the book of Genesis... We think back over all the amazing acts of faith that we have seen in this book. Enoch walked with God, and he was not because God took him. Noah preached repentance to a wicked generation and built a boat when it had never rained before. Abraham left his homeland and his father's house and traveled to a place he did not know. Because he heard from a God who his family didn't even worship. Abraham then took his only son, Isaac, up on the mountain to offer him as a sacrifice. And Isaac went along with that. Jacob dreamed and saw a ladder connecting heaven and earth and the angels of God ascending and descending on it. He trusted God to protect him from Laban and from Esau. He journeyed to Egypt to be reunited with his son. Joseph interpreted dreams. He interpreted his own dreams, the dreams of the cupbearer and the, the baker, the dreams of Pharaoh. He saved the world 
from a famine. He saved his family, his fathers and his brothers from starvation. But the New Testament tells us that the greatest act of faith in Joseph's life was to believe the promises of God as he was dying. Hebrews 11.22 says, By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Out of all the amazing and spectacular events in the life of Joseph, the one that the Holy Spirit calls our attention to is his faith in the promises of God as he dies. Now, the book of Genesis ends in a sort of cliffhanger here at the end of chapter 50. So Joseph died, being 110 years old, and they embalmed him, and he was put in a coffin in Egypt. The book ends with Joseph in a coffin in Egypt. That's not really a picture of hope. They're not in the promised land. Joseph, the great uh, savior of the people, is dead. But Joseph's dying words are significant. They are the great act of faith in his life. And to understand why, we need to put them in context. So let's zoom out and look at what leads up to Joseph's last words, and then we'll see why they are such words of faith. And we began reading at the end of chapter 49 with Jacob's last words. He's dying, and he charges his sons, uh, telling them that he wants to be buried in the land of Canaan. Specifically, he told them to bury him in the cave that Abraham had purchased uh, as a burial site for Sarah, his wife, back in chapter 23. Jacob tells us which members of the family are buried there in verse 31 of, of chapter 49. He says, There they buried Abraham and Sarah, his wife. There they buried Isaac and Rebekah, his wife. And there I buried Leah. So Abraham and Sarah, Isaac and Rebekah, Jacob and Leah. Now what's interesting is that Leah is buried in this cave and not Rachel. Rachel was the wife that jo Jacob truly loved. And if you'll remember, she was buried beside the way to Bethlehem. But Leah, the mother of Judah, the one through whom the promised Messiah would come, she is buried in the family tomb. And Jacob wants his sons to bury him there as well. Now, the question is, why? I think it's because of Jacob's faith in the promises. I mean, what good does it do to be buried in the land, but not to live in the land. Now we understand from Hebrews that Jacob and the other patriarchs understood that the land of Canaan was not the final promised land. It was only a shadow of the heavenly promised land that they were awaiting. Hebrews chapter 11 verses 13 through 16 says, these all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind that country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better 
that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Jacob knew that Canaan was not the home that he was seeking. He was looking toward the celestial city, as John Bunyan calls it in the Pilgrim's Progress. According to Romans chapter 4, verse 13, Abraham was promised the world to come as his inheritance through his seed, who is Christ. So Jacob is looking beyond this life. With the eyes of faith, he is looking to the resurrection. He is looking to the life to come in the eternal kingdom. So why does he care where he's buried? I think it's because of his faith in the promises. The promise of the world to come, but also the promise of the land of Canaan as an inheritance for his descendants. With his body carried up out of Egypt, laid in the family tomb in Canaan, it would serve as a reminder to his sons and his grandsons of the promises of God. And we can see from the description given in chapter 50 that his burial was an event that would be remembered. It was a grand state funeral. In Egypt, he is embalmed, which takes 40 days, the text tells us. History tells us that when a pharaoh, king of Egypt, were to die, they would mourn for him for 72 days. The text here tells us they mourned for Jacob for 70 days, nearly as long as they would for a king of Egypt. And then Joseph sends a request to Pharaoh to take the body of Jacob, his father, and bury it in the family tomb in Canaan. Now, he didn't go directly to Pharaoh. He sends his request through Pharaoh's household, and we might wonder why. The official mourning period is over, but Jacob is still in grief and mourning for his father, and, and you were not allowed to come before the king when you were mourning. And so Jacob sends his request through the household of Pharaoh, and he, he asks permission to leave Egypt and to go up to Canaan for the burial. Now, Burying and entombing with great pomp and circumstance, heads of household and heads of state is something that the Egyptians understood. Right? They built these massive pyramids as burial places for their kings. And so they grant Joseph's request. And as him and his brothers and their family take Jacob's body and travel to Canaan, it says that many Egyptian officials traveled with them and continued mourning for this great man, this great patriarch. The event was so large and dramatic that it made an impression on the Canaanites. You know, we read in verse 11, when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Etad, they said, this is a deep mourning of the Egyptians. Therefore, its name was called Abel Mizraim, which is beyond the Jordan. Now, that name, Abel Mizraim, means the mourning of Egypt. So, it made quite the impression on the Canaanites in this land. And after they entomb Jacob, they, they travel back to Egypt. Now, I imagine that this event, the burial of Jacob, was talked about for quite some time talk did not die down in nine or even 99 days. The second disappearance of Mr. Bilbo Baggins was discussed in Hobbiton and indeed all over the Shire for a year and a day. It was remembered much longer than that. It became a fireside story for young hobbits. Well, much like Bilbo's 11th birthday party, 
I imagine that Jacob's funeral was a story that was told to young Hebrew children by the fireside for years to come. And I think that was probably Jacob's intention. He wanted his descendants to remember the promises of God, the promise of the land of Canaan as an inheritance, the promise of deliverance from Egypt. And his burial there probably served that purpose. It was a testimony to Jacob's faith that God would keep his promise. Now, after they returned to Egypt, we see uh, this in the text, this episode of reconciliation between Joseph and his brothers. His brothers fear that now that their father is dead, there's nothing restraining Joseph from seeking vengeance against them for how they have treated him. When he was 17 years old, they threw him in a pit, stripped of his robe, sold him to slave traders, and sent him into Egypt to die. So they come to Joseph and they ask forgiveness for their evil deeds. And Joseph responds with amazing insight and humility and forgiveness. In verse 19, it says, Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? Joseph recognizes it's not his place to pursue vengeance or judgment or punishment against his brothers. That's God's place. Later, Scripture records for us, saying, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And again, the Lord will judge his people. Not Joseph's place. And he knows this. He knows it is not within his power or his rights to judge his brothers. He continues in verse 20 with this amazing theological observation. But as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring it about as it is this day to save many people alive. This is an important verse theologically. It shows exactly how it works that God can be sovereign over all things and not be the author of sin. As Stephen Charnock comments, the selling Joseph to the Ishmaelites was the act of his brethren. The sending him into Egypt was the act of God. Now, the point is, the brothers acted according to their own evil desires, moved by the sin in their own hearts, but they did so in accordance with the plan of God to send Joseph into Egypt, a plan to use Joseph to save them and their children, and many others from starvation and a famine. The, the sinfulness of the act came from their own sinful hearts and their own sinful hands. But in his almighty power, his unsearchable wisdom, and his infinite goodness, God, in his providence, determined, ordered, and governed their actions in accord with his eternal will. And the result, as Joseph notes, was the great salvation of many people. Now, this is important theologically because we see this same concept repeated in the New Testament concerning the crucifixion of Christ. Peter, in Acts 2, preaches to the Jews in Jerusalem and says, Him, that is Christ, being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, God delivered Christ up. You have taken by lawless hands 
have crucified and put to death. He was delivered up by God's determined purpose and foreknowledge, and yet they acted with sinful hands to crucify the Lord of glory. The results of Christ's crucifixion and resurrection were a great salvation. All those throughout time who trust in the promise of salvation by God's Messiah have been the recipients of His grace through the sacrificial work of Christ. So you can see that these verses in Genesis 50 are very important theologically, but they have another importance as well. The salvation which God worked by the hand of Joseph through the evil deeds of his brothers, I believe gave faith to Joseph that God would continue working for the good of his people. If their evil deed done against him was part of God's plan to save the family from starvation, anything else that might befall them in the years to come in Egypt was also part of God's plan. I'm sure this gave Joseph hope for the future of the family, the family that was to become a nation. And so it was with this confidence in the goodness and the sovereignty of God that Jacob was moved to forgive his brothers so that he could go on to promise them in verse 21, Now therefore do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. It's kind of a play on words here. If you'll remember back in chapter 37 when Joseph began having his dreams, we were told that his brothers hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. But here, Joseph comforts them and speaks kindly to them. This reconciliation with his brothers is finally complete, but it was protracted. It took a long time. He was 17 when they sold him into slavery in Egypt. And now, 39 years later, they're finally reconciled fully. This should be a lesson to us as we experience conflict with others in this life. Reconciliation is sometimes a lengthy process. Joseph had to mature and grow in his knowledge of God. His brothers had to be brought to conviction and repentance for their sins. And even then, it wasn't until after the death of their father, 17 years after they were reunited, before they're finally reconciled with no more lingering shadow of doubt and fear. Joseph fully forgives them. He repays their evil with good. So let this be a word of hope to you. If you are seeking reconciliation with a friend or a family member, take heart. Sometimes it takes many years, but by the grace of God, reconciliation is always possible while we are still alive as we continue to learn forgiveness learn to do good to others even when they have done evil to us. So now we have the context for Joseph's last words, the faith of his father Jacob and the promises, his desire to pass on that faith to the following generations, and Joseph's confidence in the goodness of God, the providence of God, his hand at work through the evil act of his brothers. Verse 22 tells us that Joseph lived 110 years, which means he spent 93 years 
in Egypt. 93 years. 80 of those years he served as Pharaoh's vice regent. He was 56 when Jacob died, so just let that sink in for a minute. It skips over 54 years of Joseph's life. Don't know what happened in those 54 years other than that he had grandchildren born to him. But as he dies, he gives instructions to his brethren, and I take that to mean his fellow Israelites, not his own brothers. He instructs them to to look for the promise of God, to bring them out of Egypt and back to the promised land. And when they go, they are to take his bones, his embalmed body with them, take him home to Canaan. And again, the resting place of Joseph's body makes no difference to Joseph. He will enjoy the resurrection and the eternal kingdom no matter where his body is buried. But it makes a difference to the children of Israel to see Joseph's faith in the promises as he dies and have this reminder of the land that has been promised to them. Verse 24 is really the key verse in this entire chapter. Joseph said to his brethren, I am dying, but God will surely visit you and bring you out of this land to the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. With his dying words, Joseph reminds the children of Israel of God's promises to them. He says that God will do three things in the future. He will visit them in their sojourning, which is to say he will visit them in Egypt where they will be suffering affliction. He says that God will bring them out of this land, out of Egypt, the land of their sojourning, the land of their exile, if you will, And he says that God will bring them to the land that has been promised to their forefathers. And notice how he defines the land. It is the land of which he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. God made promises in the past to multiple generations of the family of Abraham. And in the time to come, to a future generation, God will keep those promises. Joseph is sure of this. Just as he is sure that God was sovereignly at work through the sinful actions of his brothers to save many people from the famine, Joseph is also sure that God is faithfully working all things across multiple generations for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Joseph explains God's multi-generational faithfulness. He has been faithful to four generations of the patriarchs from Abraham to Joseph. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, four generations. He will be faithful to future generations as well. In fact, God told Abraham back in chapter 15 that his descendants would be enslaved and afflicted for 400 years. He specifically said, but in the fourth generation, they shall return here. That is, to the land of Canaan. Four generations of patriarchs from Abraham to Joseph. Four generations in peace in Egypt, from Ephraim to Joseph's great-great-grandchildren, and then four generations of affliction in Egypt. Twelve generations. Through twelve generations of the family of Abraham, God remains faithful and keeps his promises. And as we've seen before, twelve is a significant number in the scriptures. It's the number of fullness or completion. Twelve tribes is the fullness 
of the nation of Israel. Twelve apostles is the fullness of the New Testament church, and twelve generations marks the fullness of time as God keeps his promises to the family of Israel. The symmetry and the poetry of that is, is beautiful, and only God could orchestrate it in such a way. Another important number that we've seen in Joseph's life is the number two. As we've seen over and over again in the Joseph narratives, the surety of the word of God is emphasized by its repetition. Joseph had two dreams. Pharaoh's servants had two dreams. Pharaoh had two dreams. And Joseph told Pharaoh, God sent you two dreams in order to confirm that the word was sure and that it would shortly come to pass. And here we see Joseph repeating his assurance of the promise twice. God will surely visit you in verse 24. God will surely visit you in verse 25. And God does visit them. We, we know from the book of Exodus that God reveals himself to Moses in the burning bush. He, he gives them the name Yahweh, which he had not yet revealed to them, the great I am, the self-existent God. He then appears in great power when he sends the ten plagues onto the land of Egypt. And when they leave Egypt, God goes with them, a pillar of cloud by day to provide shade and comfort pillar of fire by night to provide light and safety. God visits his people. God will bring them out, and he does bring them out. He brings them out of Egypt. He delivers them with a great salvation. He breaks the chains of their affliction and bondage. He leads them out of Egypt, a nation, no longer a family of 70, but a nation, a, a massive multitude, a mixed multitude, even as many Egyptians go with them, having come to faith in the God the Hebrews serve. And they come out of Egypt, not only with great numbers, but with great wealth. And God will bring them to the land that has been promised. He doesn't lead them out of Egypt to nowhere. He brings them to the land that he had promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. He brings them home. He brings them to the promised land at his appointed time. God is faithfully working all things across generations for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Scripture tells us that it was for that reason that God raised up a Pharaoh who would afflict them. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16, But indeed for this purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. So now let's make some application of this to our lives. First, I want us to think through what this could mean for our families, this multi-generational faithfulness of God. Believers are given no guarantee that our children will be regenerate. But we are given a duty, a duty to train our children in the faith. Scripture says that we are to bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord in Ephesians 6.4. That, that we are to teach the Word of God diligently to our children, making it a regular part of our daily lives to instruct them in what God has said in the Scriptures and what he has done in our lives. We find these commands in places such as Deuteronomy 6, verses 6 through 9. 
In Psalm 78, the Lord speaks to his people saying, attend my people to my law. There too give thou an ear. The words that from my mouth proceed attentively do hear. And then God's people respond in the following verses. We also will them not conceal from our posterity. Them to the generation to come declare will we. The praises of the Lord our God and his almighty strength, the wondrous works that he hath done, we will show forth at length. His testimony and his law in Israel he did place and charged our fathers it to show to their succeeding race, that so the race which was to come might well them learn and know, and sons unborn who should arise might to their sons them show. You could see the multi-generational focus here in the psalm as the, the people of God dedicate themselves to declaring God's word and God's praises to their children who will then pass it on to their children and so forth and so on. As we come to the end of the book of Genesis this morning, consider the multi-generational faithfulness that we have seen. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Ephraim, and grandchildren to the third generation. None of the men and the women in this family are perfect. We've seen their flaws. They made mistakes. They sinned sometimes egregiously. But in repentance and hope, they clung to the promises of God with faith. And that is what God also commands us to do in our own families Teach your children and your grandchildren and your great-grandchildren the word of God. And like Jacob and Joseph, let your children see your faith in your words and your actions. Give thought to how, how you can encourage the coming generations. Think about the impact of your life, even the end of your life. The impact that it may possibly have on the faith of your family. Anyone who has raised children knows that when they're young, they imitate their parents. They walk like us. They talk like us. They use the same words that we do. Sometimes we're embarrassed by the words that they use. They have the same interests that we have. These things are largely learned from their parents and their grandparents. At some point, though, they begin to, to kind of exert themselves and develop their own interests in life. And we have this idea in our society that when that happens, usually around the teenage years, that uh, the young people then are casting off everything uh, that they've learned from their parents, uh, the authority of their parents, the values of their parents, the interests of their parents. Now, to some extent... That's true. They're kind of developing their own personality. They're finding things that they like and interests that they have, and those may diverge from ours. But they are still influenced by our beliefs, by our words, by our actions, more than they know, more than we know. I still think of my grandparents quite often. I think of their example of Christian service, hospitality, integrity, godliness, and I'm encouraged by their example. I think of my parents, the example of their marriage, of the love and sacrifice they showed for one another, of their repentance when they made mistakes, and of their dedication to pursue the truth of God. And I'm encouraged by their example. I think of my children and I wonder, 
will they be encouraged by the example that I am leaving them? If you're a Christian parent, you are an ambassador for Christ. You're given the mission of making disciples, and that starts in the home. So consider what you can do to encourage the faith of your children and your grandchildren, both in word and example. And to the children and the young people that are here this morning, I want to encourage you to look to the faith of your parents and your grandparents. They aren't perfect. But consider the trust that they have in God and let them be an example to you of faithfulness and hope. Be attentive when they read the scriptures with you and when they speak to you about Christ. Learn from them to trust in the Lord and in His Word. All of us should consider our own heritage, the heritage that we will leave to coming generations, and pray that God would show mercy and grace to our families as He did to the family of Abraham. God is working all things across generations for His good, for our good, and for His glory. Next, I want us to consider the multi-generational faithfulness of God as it relates to this church, to Antioch Reformed Baptist Church. Like raising our children, we have a duty to the next generation of Christians in this church to see to its continued faithfulness to the gospel. Again, we have no guarantee that this local church will continue until Christ returns. We hope it does. We pray that it does and that it remains faithful, but we cannot presume that it will. But we have a calling from God, nonetheless, to work towards multi-generational faithfulness on our end and to trust God's ongoing faithfulness to his people. The charge given to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2 is our charge as well. You, therefore, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. It's been said before that what one generation of the church assumes, the next generation forgets. We must never assume the gospel. We must constantly call attention back to the work of Christ. The second person of the Trinity, the eternal Son, took on human flesh. He lived a sinless life. He died a substitutionary death for the sins of his people. He rose from the grave to new life with a glorified body as the first fruits of a great harvest. And all those who believe in him, who believe that he is Lord, who trust in his perfect life for their righteousness and his sacrificial death for their sins, all those who trust in him by faith are saved. Their sins are atoned for, their souls purified, made righteous in the sight of Almighty God, and they are destined to spend eternity with him in glory. We must never assume this. We can't take it for granted. We must preach the gospel, sing the gospel, teach the gospel, trust the gospel, hope in the gospel. This way, the next generation will know the gospel and thereby know the Christ of the gospel. The Reformers taught that the Protestant Reformation was not to be a one-time event. It was to be an ongoing, never-ending process of renewal. The cry was Semper Reformanda, which is a, a Latin phrase, and it was first penned by a man named Jodocus van Lodenstein. What a great name. He was Dutch. In 1674, he wrote that the church is reformed 
and always in need of being reformed according to the word of God. This is where the phrase semper reformanda comes from, reformed and always reforming. What he meant was that the Reformation had reformed the church's doctrine, had brought it back to the scripture, but the practice of the church and the life of believers was in need of constant reformation. The key phrase is the last one, according to the word of God. In other words, the church is in need of continual sanctification by the truth of Scripture. The work is never done. We can't simply put a statement of faith on a piece of paper and call it done. We have to actually live according to the Scriptures. This church, as I understand it, was founded in 1966. That's before I was even born. Most of us have been attending this church for much less time than that. And the church has gone through a process of doctrinal reformation, and we're still pursuing that. But we must simultaneously pursue the reformation of our lives and our practice. We don't want to be a church that loses the gospel somewhere along the way because we assumed it and the next generation forgot it. My prayer is that one day we might hear those words from our Lord and Savior, well done, good and faithful servants. Enter into the joy of your Lord. As we seek to fulfill our ministry here in Lapeer County, we can't just think about ourselves or even about this current generation. The truth that we proclaim, the gospel that we herald, it can and it should reverberate through Lapeer County for generations to come. We have to think about what we do now and how it can be an encouragement to future generations how our faith can be an example to them of trusting in the promises of God. Will we find faithful men and women and teach them the pattern of sound words as Timothy was instructed to do? We don't know and we can't know what will happen here a generation or two from now. But learning from the example of Jacob and Joseph, we should think about our words, our faith, and the promises of God and how they will impact the faith of the church in the future, both inside and outside these walls, in Lapeer County and beyond. God is faithfully working all things across generations for our good and the glory of His name. And that includes here at Antioch Reformed Baptist Church. But finally, I want to encourage you as we think about God's multi-generational faithfulness And consider his church universal. Remember the promise of verse 24. God will visit them. God will bring them out. And God will bring them to. These are the promises that Joseph believed and encouraged the children of Israel with. It was his great act of faith on his deathbed. We have those same promises, brothers and sisters. Christ has made these same promises to his church. John 14, verses 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to, and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. These are the same three promises. 
Christ has promised to come again and to visit his people. This is our great hope and expectation, the return of the king. When he first came, he came to do the work of salvation, offering himself on a cross for the sake of his church. When next he comes, it will be to gather his church to himself, to bring us out of this world of sin and death, and bring us to a place of rest that he has prepared for us in glory. What a great day that will be. Genesis has shown us the multi-generational faithfulness of God to the family of Abraham. We've been grafted into that family. We've been united to Christ, the true seed of Abraham, and in him we are part of the family of God. If you have believed in Christ by faith, then you are a son or a daughter of the, the Almighty. John 1.12, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believed in his name. This means that if you've believed in the name of Jesus Christ, you are a part of the multi-generational faithfulness of God to the family of Abraham. God is faithfully working all things across generations for the good of his people and the glory of his name. Now Jacob and Joseph both died without seeing the promises fulfilled. But they believed the promises. They embraced the promises. They confessed the promises to the next generation. And some of us, maybe all of us, may die before Christ returns. My prayer is that what was said of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, and of Joseph might be said of us as well. These all died in faith not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. They desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Let's pray.